invention of ADHD is we make everybody sit still and do very unusual things for five, six, seven, eight-year-olds to do. Does that mean ADHD is totally cultural? There's no biological reality? No, but it does mean that we should really think how we educate. Is it one size fits all? Should there be more action rather than sitting in classrooms? Should we have more physical education? What are the right contexts to let people with different genetic configurations and behavioral styles thrive? Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Expertise. What is it? It is a term that is used rather cheaply, often self-ascribed by an individual to towards one's own belief about their subject knowledge. And it's often ascribed by somebody who has an interest in a subject or who has spent time thinking about it pretty deeply. There's an old saying, when you graduate with your bachelor's degree, you think you know everything. When you graduate with your master's, you realize you know nothing. And when you graduate with your PhD, you realize that nobody else knows anything either. It's an idea that highlights the expansiveness of knowledge, true knowledge. And it implies that the more you learn, the more you realize and grasp the true complexities of the subject and our own limitations of understanding it. Years ago, I was grappling with this idea is the most knowledgeable person in the world on a subject the only person who can be considered an expert? I think not. So years ago, I formulated a structure, really just for myself, to capture the different levels of expertise. There are four levels. Level one, this is somebody who has taken a very sincere interest in the subject. Whether for personal or professional reasons, they have dedicated a significant amount of time to understand what is known. They have done lots of reading, and perhaps they've even created materials, whether writing or solution models to either better understand or to try to solve the situation. This can be personal quest, or it can be a public one. So their ideas are out there for many to read and to explore. Many of the best people in the health sphere are what I consider level one experts. A level two expert has advanced the field in a more significant way, and usually by means of a peer-reviewed publication. It means that their work has been recognized by a group of expert peers to have adequate merit to be considered for publication into the sphere of scientific knowledge. Level three goes beyond that, and it's usually kind of defined by professorship. It's the life dedication to a subject. It's your career multiple publications, perhaps you even have a group of people that are working under your direction towards advancing the knowledge again on the subject or related subjects. And level four is when you are at the top of your field. You have a career marked by advancing knowledge on a subject. Other research is based on your work. Public policy is shaped by your work. And people are living better lives because of your contributions. Today's guest is Professor Stephen Hinshaw, and he is a level four expert on the condition of attention deficit. So without further ado, Steve, thank you so much for joining us at Human West Radio. Let's begin by telling us how you got into your field of study, where you're working, and what you're doing research on currently. So it's a long story, and I'll try to keep it short. I'm at both UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco now. I'm a clinical and developmental psychologist. I got interested in psychology a long time ago. During college, I decided to change from pre-medicine to psychology because that was the moment that my father decided to go against medical advice and open up and tell me every time I'd return to the Midwest home about his lifelong Utterly severe episodes of mental illness turned out to be bipolar disorder, although it had been misdiagnosed. But the doctors had told him when my sister and I were quite young, 
never to tell his children about mental illness. It would have permanently destroyed us. So our family was ensconced in silence for my first 18 years. The Midwest was a good place to grow up, but I always knew something wasn't being said. And once I learned the truth and then finally helped get dad the right diagnosis, psychology seemed like the way to go. How to learn about kids and families and genes and environments and the whole mental health enterprise. So I've ended up, after directing schools and summer camps for kids, very clinically applied focus as well as basic research, trying to study the causes of attention deficits in kids, mood disorders in kids, learning problems in kids, how to work with families, how genes interact with context in producing these conditions. And then over time, as I've matured, taking a broad view of why all of these mental health conditions in kids, teens, and adults continue to receive the stigma that they do. So I'm a multiple levels of analysis kind of researcher going inside the body and looking at biological factors into homes, into schools, into peer groups, all the way to the culture at large. I first met you when you gave a public lecture at the Mill Valley Library to a packed audience, and I was so impressed with how masterful you were at just that, the 30,000-foot view all the way down to the molecular level of attention deficit. So obviously, there's a lot of different things related to psychological conditions that we could discuss. Perhaps today we could focus more on ADHD and what has, I think, grown into something that has been recognized to now something that perhaps is maybe being overdiagnosed. We'll discuss that. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of attention deficit. When did it come? When did it actually get named? And what was the kind of early science around that condition? About 200 years ago, in developed nations, mainly the United Kingdom, clinicians and scientists started to write about mainly boys who had problems focusing in what was a then new invention of society, compulsory education. Boys were thought to have what were then called moral flaws or defects, not meaning that they were immoral, but that they seemed to have good intelligence, but that they couldn't contain their behavior. We today call this impulsivity. Over the decades, the name of this thing changed from, in the early 20th century, minimal brain damage after World War II, the influenza epidemic that killed 60 million people around the world, left in many survivors with real severe difficulties in paying attention and controlling impulses. So it was assumed that there must have been from this virus some sort of minimal brain damage that caused the symptoms. There was no brain scanning then. There was no actual evidence. The name got softened to minimal brain dysfunction, then more descriptively to hyperactivity or hyperkinesis. And over the last 30 years, the name has stayed with ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, under the assumption that the actual brain areas involved have to do with focus, controlling distractions, managing your impulses, and in many cases, not being able to restrain extraneous motor activity. So ADHD is the current lingo. Some say that it's really an inhibitory deficit disorder or a motivational deficit disorder. There's lots of theories and lots of increasing brain evidence as to an interesting fact. For some people, focusing attention is a big problem. For others, it's really that inhibitory control. You're at that birthday party. Those candles are right on top of the cake, and the cake frosting smells so good, and you blow out those candles. But it wasn't your birthday party. It was the other kids. You couldn't restrain that impulse. And, of course, this will get kids into hot water. And another old theory is that it's really about intrinsic motivation. Most people need rewards early to get projects started, and then they get that sense of satisfaction from doing it themselves. But what if you didn't have enough receptors for dopamine in key subcortical areas of the brain? You might need those rewards 
rewards constantly because that intrinsic motivation never developed. So to sum up here, we have an instance of what the fancy term would be equifiality. For some people, there does seem to be an attention deficit. Others, larger problems in executive functions like working memory and planning. Other people have inhibitory problems. Others, it's this sense of developing intrinsic motivation. And for the most severe cases we see, it's probably all of the above. So multiple roads lead to Rome in developmental psychopathology. There's multiple brain regions and systems that come online. But let's go back to 200 years ago. What brought this into existence in the first place? Compulsory education in hunter-gatherer societies, agrarian societies, where we didn't make everybody, only the rich kids, kids of royalty, learn to read previously. Now with everybody having to do it, that subset of the population, maybe 5 to 7%, who had some inborn problems in developing these regulatory systems, were now exposed or revealed. So it's an interesting proposition, I think, that ADHD is extremely genetically heritable, as we call it, but it's also revealed by a cultural shift to literacy, so it's both biological and cultural in origins. I'm laughing, or I was laughing earlier because I have a three-year-old at a birthday party that face dove into the cake while the kids whose birthday it was was blowing out the candles. <laughs> so that's typical three-year-old sure. behavior. Yeah. Frontal lobes, take they take until the mid-20s to mature. But if you do that at eight, nine, or 10, and I've seen those face plants into birthday cakes too, even at our own son's birthday parties for friends. What do other kids think? Yeah. Well, he's weird. Of course, it could be a girl too. She's acting weird. They seem like they can get their act together most of the time. What's the matter with them? So it turns out that you might think stereotypically, well, this is a problem of attention. You have difficulties in school, but with a little help, maybe medication, you can do better. It turns out that peers dislike kids with ADHD on average more than they dislike depressed or autistic or delinquent kids because these are kids who seem to have it together, but then wildly impulsively act out sporadically, Mm -hmm. leaving the kids scratching their heads. Why is this important? Peer rejection in elementary school is the single biggest predictor 20 years later of school dropout delinquency and needing mental health services by your late 20s, early 30s. There's something about not being schooled by your peers, being expelled from peer group school, if you will, that leaves you in the lurch to develop socially. So ADHD spills out into rampant, often academic problems, major social problems, and very high risk for accidental injury. Many people in society say, well, this is just bothersome behavior. We don't tolerate deviance and fidgetiness. It's not really an issue. Rates of severe injury and death are much higher in five-year-olds with ADHD, 15-year-olds all the way up the age scale, including driving accidents when people get older. So it's both the attentional lapses and that poor impulse control that can really cause physical as well as mental and emotional consequences. Also really interesting to hear you talk about how there are really different conditions that lead to a similar behavioral phenotype. So whether it's alterations in subcortical dopamine receptors to alterations in executive functions and working memory, there's different kind of back-end causes that can then lead to very similar displays of behavior. Are they all equally treatable? And does it actually matter as a clinician or as a researcher to try to identify what is actually the root cause or is the treatment really the same? So this fascinating question. So let's just go outside the box for a second. Think of depression, people who suffer recurrent major depressions. This equifinal perspective is just as applicable there. Some people grow up in families where there's been generations of people with severe mood disorders. Other people don't seem to have any family history liability, but have had major loss events repeatedly. Still others might have been maltreated as kids. All of these are different causal pathways leading to what looks pretty similarly as major depression in adulthood. Now, of course, you'd think 
with that example of depression or back to ADHD, that we need to know the precise causal pathway in order to direct a treatment. You have to know, for example, if meningitis is bacterial or viral to know whether to give antibiotics or not. We don't know enough about the brain yet. There's only perhaps 100 trillion synapses actively firing in the brain at any moment. Almost infinite (laughs) levels of interconnections are fascinating. How do they reveal consciousness? And Maybe right now, the best we can do is find the underlying dimensions of symptoms and find whether it's a biological treatment like a medication or, to my mind, more importantly, family and school-based treatments to teach the kids the skills to cope with their attentional problems and learn better executive functions and better behavioral regulation. Maybe in 30, 50 more years, when the brain science has really caught up with the behavioral syndromes, we will have very precise treatments for these underlying dimensions. We're not quite there yet. That's been a big aha for me over the last probably five or 10 years, recognizing that the behavioral treatment to any psychological condition or many is equal, if not more important than the pharmacological treatment that accompanies it. Like, for example, with insomnia, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, definitely long term more effective than taking Ambien, which actually taking Ambien or any sort of sedative hypnotic long term is probably not good at all, in fact. So not that doesn't apply universally, but definitely interesting to hear that something like behavioral impulsivity, things like that, inability to sustain attention, there is a behavioral side to that. And are there any subconditions of ADHD that are exclusively responsive to the pharmacological intervention versus having a effective behavioral component to it? Or do you have tension deficit in any way, is there always a behavioral component that is going to augment, if not be even more beneficial than the pharmacological therapy? Yeah, I think this latter statement's more on the right track. So I was involved a while ago with a major cross-national study called the MTA, the Multimodal Treatment Study for ADHD MTA, where we randomly assigned almost 600 kids at six centers around the United States all of whom were carefully diagnosed with ADHD, 8 to 10 hour assessment. This wasn't the 10 minute pediatrician's office cursory look that might lead to overdiagnosis. So with this very carefully diagnosed group, we randomly assigned them to get first, condition one, an intensive behavior modification treatment. 35 parent training sessions, consultation with teachers, an intensive eight-week summer camp, and aid in that kid's classroom during year two of the study, kitchen sink of trying to teach academic and social skills. Condition two was very well-delivered stimulant medication. We got the right pill. We got the right dose. We had to trial and error to do that over the first month, and then 30-minute visit with a very well-trained doctor every month to monitor. Condition three was both together, sort of the Cadillac treatment. A lot of families were hoping they'd get that at the beginning of the trial, but it was a one in four chance. And our fourth condition was what we call a community treatment as usual condition. Families could get whatever they could find for themselves with their pediatricians, schools, etc. Mm. What's the bottom line? For these kids with carefully diagnosed ADHD, quickly and often pretty efficiently, within a few weeks, medication, as we gave it in our study, not out in the community, which wasn't done as well, led to symptom reduction. The symptoms reduced within four weeks on average and maintained at a low level for the rest of the year and a half of the trial. However, if your goal was not simply to reduce symptoms, but to decrease depression, which often coexists with ADHD or aggressive, even delinquent behavior, and to improve schoolwork, reading and math, to improve the family's functioning at home, to have more authoritative, calm, and reasoned parenting, 
and to help the kids in their peer relationships, it was quite clear that the optimal outcome came from the combination of well-delivered medicine and this intensive behavior therapy. So it depends on what your goals are. Yeah. You want to get rid of the symptoms quick in 80% plus of cases, the medications work. Yeah. There are mild side effects. They can usually be adjusted. There's a lot of controversy about whether medications are poisons for these kids. The stimulants are obviously very safe. They're prescribed well. But if your goal is academic and social competence and treat the whole child, medications may tune the brain better, but you've got to work with the kid and in the schools and in the homes to really do this holistic, multimodal, competency-based intervention. So just to take another example again, let's say we were out of psychiatry and psychology for a minute into blood pressure. If you walk in and your blood pressure is 300 over 200, that doctor better get out a prescription pad pretty quick. We don't have time, this is a health crisis, to start off with diet and exercise. But if you go in at whatever the standards, and they're constantly reset, 145 over 95 in that borderline to high range, maybe the best long-term results are going to be from lifestyle change, getting a better exercise regimen, watching your diet, and medications may be added as needed to that to kind of tweak and get you in the right range. So psychiatric illness is a lot like medical illness. Often the treatments we give and whether you add a biological component depends on severity. But medications often don't have lasting effects, especially after you stop the medication. If you can change the environment and change the inner workings of the person's mind, maybe, and it's a maybe because we don't have great long-term data for any psychiatric condition yet, maybe then you've got a longer-term solution. Can long-term medication therapy actually cure the condition in some people if over that period of time they establish a better behavior set where they don't engage in the negative behaviors that have serious consequences? If over years they become a person who does things a certain way, can you withdraw the medication and have those positive behaviors persist? So this is a great question and a very difficult one. We're going to choose another example again. Let's go to bipolar disorder. Yep. It used to be called manic depressive illness. People with this very difficult combination of manias and depressions alternating or sometimes appearing together throughout one's life. Now, bipolar illness has probably the highest heritability or genetic liability of almost any psychiatric condition we know of. Genes rather than child rearing passes this along. Yeah. For someone with bipolar disorder, untreated, nearly 50% will make a serious attempt on their lives and about 20% overall will complete suicide. So this is lethal. The stereotype is, oh, you're giddy, you're euphoric, mania is no big deal. The poor judgment, the psychotic delusions that come into play, the impulse control problems are huge. The medical rule of thumb today is you're playing with fire. Often people with bipolar illness may need to be on medications for long periods of time. But the medications regulate the firing in various brain regions. Squelching these episodes also allow the person to develop job skills and better relationship skills and a whole bunch of life skills. There are some who would say that if you've been symptom-free for a time, maybe we could taper that medication. That's true for unipolar depression more than bipolar with that high suicide liability. Now, what about ADHD? Here... The genetic liability is almost as high as it is for bipolar disorder. Medication help you focus, help you remember. Oh, you know, it's that other kid's birthday, not mine, right? Right. You get that impulse control, that inhibitory control goosed up a bit. And maybe then you're better able to learn in school. Maybe then you're better able to learn from peers. 
over time, of course, we haven't randomly assigned 10,000 kids with ADHD to medicine for the next 20 years and 10,000 to placebo. It's unethical. We couldn't do it. It would be a hugely expensive study. But over time, medication alone, as effective as it can be in the short term, doesn't teach those skills. It doesn't prevent, on average, delinquency and school failure. So my strong suspicion, based on the research I've done and many others have done, is the medicine primes the brain. But the real lasting benefits are going to come from lifestyle change, getting the family and teachers, and when you're an adult, employers and spouses on board, and knowing what the triggers are. A lot of people, adults with ADHD, do better in self-employed rather than assembly line jobs because attention is better, motivation is stronger when you're calling your own shots rather than someone else. Long story short, we don't know yet who, which subgroups are going to need medication for a long time, who might need it for a relatively short time to get those skills goosed up. And of course, it probably depends on severity. And the bottom line is, unless a doctor is working closely with the family, monitoring treatment regularly, not once a year with a five-minute, well, how's he or she doing, we won't know which way to gear treatments. Well, let's talk about medications, and maybe we could just do a brief review of the types of medications that are used and in whom they are used. So the differences, you know, you might select this type of patient with this medication, and that will kick off the conversation for the rest of the interview here. So let's talk about meds. So the main class of meds used for ADHD are stimulants. Well, you think already, well, wait a minute, why would you stimulate the brain of somebody who's already sped up? The theory for a long time was people with ADHD have paradoxical brains. They respond to stimulants by slowing down, so there must be something really funny in the wiring there. So we have to back up. Stimulants are, if we termed it better, SDRIs, selective dopamine reuptake inhibitors. Most people know what an SSRI is. They've been in the news for 20 plus years. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Serotonin squirts out of the first neuron in the chain stays in the synaptic cleft, hits the receptor, but pretty quickly gets grabbed back up by that first neuron. The SSRI blocks that process of reuptake. It leaves more serotonin out there for firing. Stimulants are SDRIs. They do the same thing for dopamine and also for the key neurotransmitter norepinephrine. So they're really SDNRIs, just to confuse the alphabet soup. So while the stimulants are in your bloodstream, there's more dopamine and norepinephrine available as synapse to fire on that next neuron in the chain. So what do we see? Within 20 minutes of swallowing the pill, pill leaves your stomach, crosses the blood-brain barrier, starting to work in the central nervous system, person is better able to focus because dopamine is a key neurotransmitter for intrinsic motivation and that sense of reward and for regions and pathways in the brain linked between the frontal lobes and the striatum to help you modulate behavior, somewhat show executive functions, and control your impulses. Now, not everybody responds to stimulants. Stimulants goose up your pulse and blood pressure a few ticks. They can make it hard to sleep, so you have to make sure the dose doesn't stay too late in your bloodstream in the evening. Stimulants are very short-acting. Each morning you start over again. You never build up to what's called a steady state. But some people have side effects that don't go away with that tweaking. So another class of medications are the noradrenergic or norepinephrine drugs like atomoxetine, the trade name Stratera. It's an SNRI it specifically blocks the reuptake of norepinephrine and not dopamine. So you don't get that quick attentional boost, but over months and longer, you get better impulse control. 
there's a third class of noradrenergic, norepinephrine-like drugs that used to be blood pressure medications that work out on the periphery and in the brain and get you just in a calm enough state that some of your symptoms dissipate. There's a few other meds that are tried without nearly the evidence. What's really important just to talk clinically for a minute is, number one, the medications are not poisons for somebody with serious ADHD. They really can work. But two, they only work if you have the right medicine at the right dose. Mm -hmm. In my extensive experience clinically and in research, we know that, let's take two 10-year-old classic boys with ADHD, same weight, same level of disruptive behavior, et cetera, et cetera. One of them takes a stimulant like methylphenidate or Ritalin at a tiny five milligram dose a couple of times a day, shows a great effect. The other takes 10 times that much and barely shows an effect. The genes and metabolism within each kid differ enough, but we don't know how to predict that yet. That's what personalized medicine is going to get us toward. Then unless the doctor tries a low, medium, and high dose systematically for a few weeks or even several months and gets parents and teachers to rate the behavior every week to make sure, you don't know how many families have come to our study saying, Dr. Hinshaw, these medicines don't work well, in our summer programs, you try a dose-response trial, or you try another agent if the first one doesn't work, and of course, again, combine that with behavior therapy, and all of a sudden, what seemed like a treatment failure is not at all. So if somebody is on a high dose, it's not necessarily that they've built up a tolerance over time. It just could be individual sensitivity because of metabolism, you know, receptor sensitivity for that drug. So a high dose is really a relative term. It's a relative term, but I want to pick up on what you just said about tolerance. Now, the stimulants, if you don't have ADHD and you're a college student looking for a study advantage or you're looking to party all night, stimulants goose up dopamine. They give a sense of euphoria for people like this. If you are abusing stimulants or you don't start off doing it that way, but to get that euphoria that high, tolerance can develop pretty quickly. You're going to need to, over a few weeks, double, triple, quintuple your dose to get that same high that you sought initially. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, for people with ADHD, probably because of genes that are just being discovered, most people with ADHD, when they take these medicines, don't get a euphoria at all. In fact, if anything, if you study their faces, they get slightly down, a little more focused, not as rambunctious. Mm. So there may be some inborn protection against stimulant abuse for people with ADHD. And the tolerance that can build in an abuser very quickly for somebody with ADHD, of course, if it's a kid, they're going to grow each year. You might need to gradually increase the dose to manage the body weight to get the drug through the metabolic pathways. But there also is concern over what's sometimes called a slow tolerance. Would year one, year two, year three, year four, by having your dopamine system in your brain more enhanced and getting the dopamine not reuptaken into that presynaptic neuron as we talked about, maybe you start to slightly burn out some dopamine circuits. People with depression with SSRIs, not everybody, we can't predict this yet. Some years later, you get to that maximum dose and you got to try something else. Also for ADHD, there's some brain imaging evidence that at least in a subgroup, year after year of treatment may make that pill less effective, but it's not the same as that quick tolerance a drug abuser would get. Interesting. So that is uh, always been an interest and question of mine is the long-term implications, safety of use of these medications, whether you're diagnosed with ADHD or if you're somebody that's using these drugs just to enhance performance, which 
I'm curious to know if you have a specific statistic about the amount of amphetamines that are used just for study performance. But there is some thought that these medications can be damaging to dopaminergic yeah. systems. For people with ADHD, I mean, these medicines have actually, they're the oldest psychotropic medications of the 20th century. Yeah. Dr. Bradley in Rhode Island started using stimulants for kids in his residential treatment center in 1938, predating antipsychotic and antidepressant medications by 15 to 20 years. The safety profile, despite the stereotypes and, and stigma about taking speed stimulant medications, is pretty darn good if the regimen's followed carefully. Where we get into trouble, though, is with stimulants as, quote, smart pills, performance enhancers, party pills. Between 2009 and 13, emergency department admissions for stimulant overdose increased by 360 percent in the United States. Wow. It's really high. So during the first 10 years of this century, roughly from 2002 or 3 till 12 or 13, rates of diagnosis of ADHD went up 42% in kids in the United States. That's like an epidemic, but this isn't, as far as we know, a communicable disease. So why first were those rates of diagnosis going up so high? Direct-to-consumer advertisements, big pushing by pharma to get these pills prescribed. Obviously, they do benefit some kids, but Richard Scheffler, health economist at UC Berkeley, and I wrote a book two years ago called The ADHD Explosion, probing this very issue, and found that a key reason was that in many states who had suddenly put into effect accountability laws for school testing, accountability laws don't have anything to do with ADHD, though, to get test scores up. But in those states that suddenly enacted those laws, over the next few years, rates of ADHD diagnosis, especially among kids near the poverty line, shot up 50, 60 percent. So if the school district, especially the poor urban district, is trying to get test scores up, maybe you get kids on the borderline diagnosed and treated, or maybe, much more insidiously, a kid gets that special ed ADHD diagnosis, and their scores are all of a sudden excluded from the district's mean test score. Mm. So there was kind of a nefarious undertone to this, too. All this goes by way of saying ADHD is linked to academic and vocational performance. So, of course, a lot of people, when these rates of diagnosis are going up, that means more high school kids and college kids with this diagnosis have the pills right in the medicine cabinet. Do you let your roommate use it because they've got a midterm coming up? Or can you sell Adderall for five or ten bucks a tab, et cetera, et cetera? So the surveys don't have a consistent number, but the current estimates are that somewhere between eight and 25% of college students in the United States without any ADHD at all have been or are using stimulants to enhance their performance. Yeah. This is a high number. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is twofold. Number one, if you have ADHD, these medicines not just help your attention focus, but they help your memory. They help you retain information. They have some real learning benefits. If you don't have ADHD, the medicines keep you up late. They get that studying done that you put off all semester, but the effects on actual learning are almost nil. Mm. However, point two is this. If you have ADHD and you're followed carefully by a doctor because of some of this genetic protection we talked about, and if you're monitored regularly, pretty darn unlikely you're going to get addicted to those stimulants, under 1%. But the most current estimates are that 10 to 15% of unsuspecting college students using stimulants as smart pills will end up in the ER for addiction to stimulants. 
Addiction to stimulants, I just have two words to say, breaking bad. This is not a pretty picture. Yeah. It's not as quick when you take them orally in pill form as when you inject meth, which hits your brain and bloodstream within seconds, but it's the same mechanism of action. So my bottom line is this. If society thinks we're going to solve our achievement test problems and become a more productive, economically viable society by having just about everybody take stimulants, I think we're barking up a wrong tree, and I think there's real health risks from doing that. Yeah. How normal is it for a child to sit in a chair all day long and be talked at by an adult? Right. And and you mentioned right. this in your presentation at the Mill Valley Library, is that biologically, this is an unusual situation that, that we're putting young children in. And so do you really have attention deficit or do you have conditional attention deficit due to yeah. the, these unusual conditions? So let's go way back in time. Let's go back in evolutionary history. Most humans were foragers, hunter-gatherers. Foragers is sort of the new word for hunter-gatherers. Compulsory education, you learned on the job by accompanying dad on the hunt or mom foraging for food, right? We didn't make kids sit in one-room schoolhouses or factory-like giant schools or do the things we do in our post-industrial era today. So what would have been good? It's good for any species to have genetic diversity in case conditions change. Probably good for some humans to have been pretty darn careful and others to have been more exploratory and impulsive because you're the one who might have found that prey out there. Mm. Of course, if you're too impulsive and you've only got two arrows and you shoot your wad too quickly, uh-oh, no food for the tribe for the week. So there's always a balance between, let's say, the attentional systems and the exploratory systems of the brain. Now, something interesting happened about 15,000 years ago. Humans who lived in contemporary China and Asia Climate started to change, last ice age, et cetera, et cetera. The Bering Strait was then not a strait, but it was a landmass. As climate started to change, some of those individuals started to head over to what we now call Alaska and then down to British Columbia, California, some of them all the way down to South America. So back 15,000 years ago in China, the allele frequency, so there's a gene that controls how much receptor action you have for dopamine. And there's an allele of that gene that predicts in a small group of people that you've got not quite the same dopamine receptor coverage, makes you more impulsive. Mm -hmm. The gene allele frequency back in China was about 3%. Mm. Who were the people who headed off across the Bering Strait landmass, right? Yes. The explorers. So fascinating genetic analyses through human remains. If you go to modern-day Alaska, modern-day British Columbia, California, all the way down to Central and South America, that allele frequency goes to 10, 15, 20, 30, 35 hmm. percent. The people who migrated were people with exploratory genes. So that was adaptive in some ways, right? Yeah. But then what happened in, I think, 1816, Massachusetts was the first state in America uh, to have compulsory education, a little bit earlier in England. Now we make every kid sit in a classroom doing things the human brain never evolved to do, learn to read. Reading's only been around for 5,000 years. So when the environment and the context changes drastically, Genes that might have been helpful at an earlier time now produce behaviors that might not be so adaptive anymore. So that's the invention of ADHD is we make everybody sit still and do very unusual things for five, six, seven, eight-year-olds to do. So we uncover ADHD. Now, does that mean ADHD is totally cultural? There's no biological reality? No. The most severe, in terms of impulsity kids in the hunter-gatherer tribe would have gotten into trouble. They're the ones who get into real, real trouble in current schools. But it does mean that we should really think how we educate. Is it one size fits all? 
all? Should there be more action rather than sitting in classrooms? Should we have more physical education? All of a sudden now this brings in a whole other cultural dimension, not to just individual brains and dopamine and norepinephrine levels in brains, but what are the right contexts to let people with different genetic configurations and behavioral styles thrive? On my blog, I've been writing about how physical activity can augment mental performance, and there's two ways to look at it, a consistent physical activity practice and what the effect that that has on nootrophic factors and then even things like executive functioning and then also the acute effect of doing physical activity now. I call my office a lab. The reason I do that is because I test different ways to optimize my ability to think across the day. And one of the articles that I wrote about is this ability of moderate intensity physical activity just around a jog to augment blood flow. And if you go beyond that, the amount of blood flow that goes to the brain will reduce back to baseline level. So you don't necessarily get a boost in thinking ability from blood flow specifically, but how also muscle activity alone can be another stimuli to the brain to cause cortical arousal. And a really interesting story was told by David Dingus at Stanford. Uh, he's a very prominent sleep researcher. And it shows the, the impact of muscle activity on cortical arousal. 88 hours of sleep deprivation for this one subject where they were doing a long kind of a extended sleep deprivation study. He seemed to be interacting really well with the sleep researchers and had good positive mood. They had him sit down to take the last cognitive test, the psychomotor vigilance test. And as soon as he sat down, he started to accuse the researchers that they filled the room with gas, that they were gassing <laughs> him. They looked at each other like, gosh, is he you know, hallucinating? Right. They were very concerned. And what they realized is that when he sat down from a standing up position, that lack of muscular activity was one of the few things that was keeping his brain awake. And he started to feel like he was being gassed because he had wow. so much sleep pressure. Wow. Think about if you're laying down, you know, you're much more likely to feel sleepy if you're taking muscle relaxants. So just that muscular activity is another factor that can keep your cortex alert and stimulated. Right. So uh, just a comment on that. So over the last two to three years now, not huge, but medium-sized, very carefully controlled clinical trials for kids with ADHD show unequivocally that 30 minutes of aerobic exercise a day mm -hmm. over the course of some weeks helps parent and teacher ratings, even objective measures, activity level, attention, focus, inhibitory control. Now, the effect sizes from this aerobic exercise are not as big as they are from stimulant medications or well-delivered behavior therapy, but they might augment. What we're talking about is holistic treatments to get the body moving and therefore the brain moving, medicine for the kids with the most and adults with the most severe conditions. Everybody needs skills. I mean, there's a few individuals with ADHD who don't have any comorbid conditions, have pretty good friends, etc. A little dose of stimulants and boom, they're kind of fine. But the vast majority of the time, you got to make up for the academic deficits, teach better social skills, learn how to inhibit, work on executive functions. And so a multimodal treatment, including exercise, is part of the picture. Yeah. And also recognition of your chronotype. When is your brain naturally alerted? Are you a morning person or an evening person? Some people that have real tendencies, which is about 20% of the population, lean one way or the other. I think particularly for students that have a late chronotype, I wonder how much ADHD is diagnosed by their internal genetic structure that is predicting when their maximal alertness is. And if it's not in the morning, is it in the evening, then you can't concentrate when you need to, but yep. that might be the cause. I think that's true. And again, we are not at the point, but we're fast getting there to 
personalize not just medicine, but all of psychological and psychosocial care. What's your chronotype? What's your genotype? What kinds of meds are you going to respond to with the minimum side effects? Who's going to respond best? And some fascinating research in the adult depression world to try to predict. On average, you get kind of equal results with serious depression from SSRI therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. But of course, some people respond better from one than the other. And now we're starting to get statistics and profiles of the person when they walk into the clinic to predict who's going to do best in either one of those or the combination. This is where the field's going. This is where we need to go. So that I understand, I mean, there are real risks to untreated ADHD for adults and for children. I remember you talked also about in your lecture, the extraordinarily higher rates of divorce in untreated adults with ADHD. So it's kind of a risk kind of balance equation. So, you know, should I take medications? Well, for some people, the answer is clearly yes. So even if there is a risk of the drug, there's massive consequences for non-treatment. But for people that are taking a low dose over time and have good behavioral practices in terms of getting enough sleep and physical activity, et cetera, do we see long-term consequences of consistent but low-dose ephedamine usage? Let me take this in two parts. First, you started off with talking about some of the impairments. I haven't even mentioned our research on girls with ADHD. We have the largest sample of girls with this condition in the world that we know of now followed into their mid to late 20s. Our girls with ADHD, when they started off in elementary school and came to our summer programs, those who were quite impulsive, not just inattentive, but impulsive, 10, 15 years later are showing extraordinary rates of suicide attempts and extra extraordinary rates of what we call cutting non-suicidal self-injurious behavior that boys don't show as much. So this isn't a passing condition of a lack of focus and being spacey. The health consequences are serious. So now in terms of treatment and in terms of stimulants that do stimulate your wake centers of the brain and keep you up later. This is the problem in part with using stimulants periodically without an ADHD diagnosis. Well, when are you going to take it at night to pull that all-nighter, which is going to disrupt your sleep for that night and probably long beyond. Optimally, for somebody with clear ADHD, you're going to want to dose regularly. Make sure the dose is faded out so you do get that sleep in the evening. If you get that dose right, and if you've made those kind of doctor-initiated adjustments, most kids with ADHD actually somewhat sleep better on medication because they're not as worried at night about how much they screwed up during the day and might have some long-term regulatory effects that we just don't know about. But it's this inconsistent chipping, stimulants of smart pills, stimulants of party pills. We know from personal accounts that a lot of people at a frat party or whatever who are going to drink quite a bit take stimulants so they can stay up longer and drink more. This is not what we call a medically indicated use of stimulants. There's going to be long-term psychological accident-related and sleep consequences if that's the way you're taking these meds. So a thread of human OS is looking at ancestral methodologies to support or direct modern-day health objectives. Can we look into our past? Like you mentioned, you know, what was lifestyle like before modernity where things have changed so rapidly? And what was light exposure like? What was sleeping patterns and physical activity patterns like? And how can we use that to thrive optimally now? I've been speaking at that conference for years, the Ancestral Health Symposium. I'm an editor for the Journal of Evolution and Health. I think it is such a source for us to find ways to then improve our lives. But 
one thing that's really interesting if you look at hunter-gatherer patterns is that they will demonstrate very robust circadian rhythmicity. And so they have seemingly more robust alertness drive during the day, and then they have a deeper plummet in the evening. Hmm. And that probably has to do with the amount of light exposure and the pattern of light exposure that they're experiencing over the course of the day, since light exposure is the main driver of circadian timing and rhythm. And the light intensity is massively reduced as we go from outdoors to indoors. And we spend all of our time indoors sitting down at a computer, most people. And so, you know, I've thought, is there a possibility for low-dose stimulants to artificially create greater circadian rhythmicity? Higher alertness drive during the day drops off in the evening. You actually feel like going to sleep earlier than you might because you no longer have medication if you haven't taken it at the right time, right? Right. And then you might maintain a better sleep practice and a deeper sleep. Totally speculative. Just an idea that's crossed my mind. Well, you've got a great idea for a new research study. Let's collaborate. (laughs) Let's do it. It's intuitively uh, quite appealing. Um, Stimulants are very short acting. They last in your bloodstream four hours or some of the long acting ones, eight to 10, and they're out at night. So it would be made to order for a within subjects medicine placebo trial to see if we got the right biological measures, if what you're suggesting is accurate. It's an honor to speak to somebody who has such profound level of expertise on a subject. And I really appreciate you coming on to the show. And I look forward to hopefully one day bringing you back on to talk also about the stigmatization of mental disorders and what we need to know in order to address those effectively as well. Well, it's been my pleasure. And thanks for the great questions. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.